Good morning. I have been told, according to the people that talk on the news, that it's an election year. Uh, it feels to me like it's always an election year, but every four years it's a, especially an election-y election year, right? Where it just, for about 12 months, it's all you hear about. And then the other three years we complain about whatever we did for that one year. Uh, it's not my favorite year uh, when it comes to those, but it comes around. It's part of the price you pay for a democratic system, I suppose. Um, I've mentioned before, as a philosophy guy, I'm a big Aristotle fan. Aristotle wasn't a fan of democracy, so that it's a bad idea. Uh, but, you know, it's what we do, probably better than the alternative. I think it was Churchill that said democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Uh, and that's maybe the way it works. The reason I mention it on a Sunday morning is because over the course of the next year, uh, there are two large political parties that are going to be telling you a story. They're going to be telling you uh, value statements about what matters and about what doesn't. They're going to be telling you who the enemy is and why, and why you should vehemently oppose them with all of your material resources, with your vote, with your money, with your conscience, with your relationships, with everything you are. There's a good guy and a bad guy, and one of them's the person next to you in the pew, probably. And that is what's going on this year. That's the story we're being sold. And what will be reported on is the question of who's winning that contest. And because you're being told and convinced that one of those sides represents you, you will feel like you are either winning or losing. Or as a Christian, you will feel like Christians are either winning or losing. Here's a little proverb, a little riddle for you to ponder today about this whole thing that I believe is true. Nearly everything you're going to be told this election year is true, and all of it is a lie. I know it sounds like it shouldn't be, but it is. Nearly everything you're going to be told is true, and all of it is a lie. That's what makes lies work, right? If I tell you the sky is orange, you say, well, I, I don't buy that. That doesn't seem reasonable at all. But if I tell you it's raining outside right now, you'll stop and think about it. Not because it's any more true, it's not raining, but because it's possible and it has been raining this weekend and there's a chance of rain and it could be. There was enough truth worked into that that you say, oh, maybe it is. Ben's pretty believable. He says it's raining outside. It's not. That's how lies work. Most of what we're being told is true. At the same time, all of it's a lie. Because what you're being told is that that is the great contest of the year, that that is the great event of our time, and that your personal identity and that of the church and of Christianity is tied up into that concept, uh, it, that contest in like an existential way. Christianity will stand or fall one way or the other. That when your party or candidate is winning, you're winning. And so is the church. The lie is that that's the game we're playing. 
And I want to take a little time this morning with the Apostle Paul to ask this question and let him answering it. What does winning look like for Christians? What does it look like? What, what is the game we are playing? When I play Monopoly, I know what winning looks like. When I have the most money and Selene is mad, I am winning. That's what winning looks like. But you have to decide on the game, right? If we're playing Monopoly and you yell, checkmate, well, something's wrong there, right? We're not even playing the same game. And I think that's a lot of what's going on in the world is that we're being told we're playing one game. Christians just think of the whole thing differently. What does winning look like for Christians? And we're going to ask the Apostle Paul. Our text today, we're going to have actually two texts. We're going to hop back and forth. But our primary text is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In its context, uh, to just zoom in just a little bit, the first 17 or so verses of that chapter is Paul responding to some personal criticism. It always makes me feel good when I read Paul B. that he's been criticized uh, because it turns out anybody in any kind of leadership position gets criticism. If the Apostle Paul is not immune to it, then none of us are. It's just the way it goes. But the Apostle Paul, that great man of legend and import to Christian history, at his time there were people saying, you're not enough this and you're not enough that and you're not doing that right and we don't like this. And he's having complaints, apparently from the church at Corinth, or at least some of them, to the extent that he's having to respond to it. And he's a little um, mouthy about it. Like, in Jesus' name. It's all loving, right? But he's, he's fed up. And you can feel the vibe when you read those first verses that he's had about enough. And so the first several verses are him responding to that criticism and even asserting what his rights are as an apostle, of what he is due, what he deserves. But then towards the end of it, he changes gear and says, though I am entitled to all of that, though I have a right to all of that, though all of your criticism is misplaced, though everything you said is in the wrong arena altogether, none of it's really the reality of what's going on, none of that is the case he says, though I am entitled to these rights, I've actually availed myself of almost none of them. But actually, he has lived an entirely different life. He's been playing a different game the whole time. And so he begins then in verses 18 through 19 with this response. What then is my reward? Okay, Paul, if you've given up these things that you're entitled to, what are you getting out of this? What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Though, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all that I might win more of them. Does Paul have rights? He does. He says, I, I have rights. I am due some things. I am owed some things. I am entitled to some things. He says, but I have deliberately chosen to not cash those in. Quite literally, the discussion is about money. For the first 17 verses, he's like emphatic that it's appropriate to pay someone like Paul. And yet he says, when I was in Corinth, I didn't ask that of you. So quite literally, he didn't cash in his rights. And yet he says, I have chosen something else instead. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant 
Okay? Rather than getting what I'm owed, what I'm entitled to, I have made myself a servant. Why would you do that? That I might win more of them. I was curious about this word win as we read this passage. He's going to use it three or four more times. It's the most common verb in this little paragraph, win. And I was curious why that word and what does it mean. Maybe it means something different in Greek and in English, and I'm missing the point. And in Greek, the term for win here means win. Yeah, it was really good time spent in a dictionary. I really gained a lot. It's, just, it's exactly the word. There's no hidden secret. It's a word you might use in a business if you make a profitable transaction or you get ahead in something. It means to profit, to benefit, to win, to get the goal. And yet Paul clearly here is using it in an abnormal way. What does Paul mean by winning? What is the game he's playing that he's accomplishing? Paul won not by insisting on his rights, but by giving up his rights, by not cashing in what he was due. Instead of acting like the master, he acted like the servant and was quite pleased to do it in order to win over people, to play in a different game than others were playing. To understand this a little bit, he's going to explain it. In the next verse, he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. A lot of words there. What did he say? And he used the word win again twice, right? How did I win with the Jewish population? He said, I, though he, again, wants to be very clear, lest he's, misunderstood, though he was under no obligation to play by their rules, the rules, the, the codes of the law of Moses, or the rules and traditions of the Pharisees, or even the rules and strictures of the synagogues. He was no personal obligation to do that, and he asserts that just as a matter of principle. He puts his marker down, just, just want to remind you, didn't have to do that. He said, but I did. Why? Because that's how the winning was done with the Jewish people. Paul, in his teaching, won Jews by submitting himself to the disciplines of, for instance, the Jewish synagogue. We probably don't think about that as much as we should. We just kind of gloss over it. We think when it says in a text, like Acts chapter 18, this is Paul in Corinth. So he's, this is the letter to the Corinthians. Acts 18 is Paul in Corinth. And what does he do there? He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Okay. What does it mean to reason in the synagogue every Sabbath? It's not just a location. It's not like it's open mic night at the synagogue, and anybody who wants to get up and share an idea can. Right? This is a place of worship and study and ritual. And by going there, specifically on a Sabbath, which is when the people would be there, there are rules and expectations in place when you're in that space at that time. And Paul submitted himself to those rules in order to be more persuasive. In the same way, if you come in here to this building, this space, 
at 9.30 on a Sunday morning. You may have noticed this morning, we don't just let everybody get up. Hey, anybody want to say anything? Sure, preach a sermon, right? Why don't we do that? There's rules and expectations. There's somebody, we even have them listed on the front of the bulletin. Here's whose turn it is next. This is what we're doing. Here's the order. And so when you come here and you attend on a Sunday morning, you don't really think of it this way, but you're submitting yourself to the rules of that event and the expectations. This is the part when we sing. This is the part when we take communion. I've got to raise my hand if I forgot my communion cup. Now, all those things. When you attend the synagogue on a Sabbath day, you're submitting yourself to the rules, and some of those rules had consequences. And Paul knew going in that while he was not under any moral obligation to be subject to them, by being there at that place, at that time, doing what he was doing, he was going to be pushing the boundaries of those rules and incurring some consequences. I told you we're going to have two texts today. We're going to go back and forth between 1 Corinthians 9, where he says what he did, and then also 2 Corinthians 11, where he describes it in greater detail. In 2 Corinthians 11, there's a kind of a laundry list of things that Paul endured. And specifically, in among the Jews, in 2 Corinthians 11, 22 to 24, he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. I always love it when Paul says that. I'm not like a madman, I know. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times... Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. How many times have you been lashed in your life? Anybody here get a good caning on a regular basis? Anyone flogged in the public square? It's not a normal part of our life. It doesn't come up a lot. Okay? Paul says, not once, five times I've received at the hands of the Jews, and he mentions the Jewish people because that's the, the game he had been playing at the time. He was working under their rules, and he even spells it out specifically. There's a little detail there, the 40 lashes less one. What's that about? Under the, the rules of the Jew, Jewish disciplines, you were allowed to give somebody up to 40 lashes, 40 stripes. Okay, And so, as a way not to ever cross that line, in practice, they would only ever give out 39. I mean, what, what if you miscounted? And you accidentally broke the law and gave a guy 41. A little less concerned with whether or not he deserved it, but definitely concerned that we're counting them correctly. And so, in practice, what you would do if you broke some of the rules is you could, at maximum, get the maximum penalty then, in practice, was 40 minus the 1 39 lashes. Okay. Paul got the maximum penalty five times. Think about that now. What did he do to deserve that? We could debate that all day, but the first thing he did to get that was show up in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. I got to tell you, if I come to church this morning and you beat me, I won't be back next week. I'm not going to come back four more times and get five beatings. You understand? Paul keeps going back and submitting himself to the rules of that game. 
knowing what he's getting. You know, the first time, maybe he didn't know. He did know. He used to be the guy who administered the beatings. He held the coats when they stoned Stephen to death. He knew full well the price. And he keeps going back. And he keeps going back. Because that's how he was winning. By enduring the consequences of that game he wasn't even really playing. He says, by playing along and doing that, I won. I won Jews by submitting to the abuse of the Jewish people. Is Paul particularly bitter toward Jewish people? No, because they weren't the only ones doing it. He continues back in our original text, 1 Corinthians 9.21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So now, speaking of people that weren't following the law of Moses, that weren't Jewish people, who weren't living by the rules of the synagogue, who weren't doing that bit, there was now on the other side of things the Roman rules. The Roman world had Roman rules. Caesar was emperor. His governors were in control. Your job as a Roman citizen, in the same way being a good Jewish citizen meant one thing, being a good Roman citizen meant something else. Pay your taxes, stay out of trouble, be quiet, honor Caesar. Pretty simple rules to get along in the Roman world. And Paul would publicly engage in that game, engage in those rules, and pay the consequences of trying to be persuasive. Not asserting further rights, but only doing those things that furthered the gospel. Paul won Gentiles by submitting himself to the injustice of Gentile courts. When Paul gets himself nigh to arrested in Jerusalem, he appeals to Caesar. And every time he has a courtroom date, he appeals to Caesar. It's a right he has as a Roman citizen, but it's a terrible idea. One, Caesar's not really a great human being at this particular moment in history. None of them are really fantastic. But Nero's especially bad. So appealing to the justice of Nero is like appealing to no justice. Furthermore, you're making yourself a nuisance to the Roman government. Yes, you had the right to appeal to Caesar, but it was kind of a nuisance. He has to get transported, and then he see the next governor and the next governor. And some of those governors even say, we'd have let you go if you wanted, but you keep appealing to Caesar because Paul is playing a different game. He's not trying to get out of it the same way he wasn't trying to get out of beatings in the synagogues. He's trying to persuade people. He wins differently. And he submits himself to the cruel injustice of the Gentile courts in order to be persuasive there. Listen to his description again. Now back to our secondary text, 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers and danger from robbers and dangers from, oh, so much danger. Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst often without food and cold and exposure. And that's quite a list. If we were cynical people, we'd say, I'm not sure I buy all that. I mean, that's a lot. Sounds like my dad when he told me about how they got to school every day. Barefoot in the snow both ways uphill. 
But no, like the book of Acts records a bunch of this and says, and here's how it happened. It records enough of it that you believe the rest of it. Where you say, oh, there, there were more beatings than the ones that were recorded? Yeah, lots of them. And he lists them out separately. Yes, he was in danger from his own people, but now he's listing the dangers of the Roman world. And he submitted himself to that. Why? Again, beaten with rods three times, in addition to the five times the 39 lashes. He says, no, there's three other occasions I got beat with rods. Shipwrecked and on and on and on and on. Why are you doing this to yourself, Paul? Is he a masochist? Does he like suffering? He says, I was playing a different game. Everybody else that plays the Roman game is trying to stay out of trouble. Paul was trying to get into it. Paul was trying to be persuasive and was willing to pay the price. Paul won Gentiles by enduring the dangers of reaching them. Whatever the cost, he's playing a different game. So back in our original text, 1 Corinthians 9, he says this, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. You know, the Sesame Street game, one of these things is not like the other. He's been using the same verb all along. Win, 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 win. And then at the end, he changes it just to catch your attention. Save. What game was Paul playing? He says, there were the weak that I needed to win and I needed to help in the rescue and salvation of those people. Who do you think the weak are, by the by? been pondering that this week. So you're thinking category-wise, talked about the Jews, talked about the Gentiles. Who's the third group? Isn't that everybody? Jews, Gentiles, and then he said the weak. Who's, who's the third group? Who is the third group that is causing Paul pain? Who is the third group that is making Paul's life difficult? kind of already told us because the chapter began in response to Christians that were making his life difficult and if you go to 2nd Corinthians 11 the parallel passage when he talks about the weak he's talking about the church itself Paul won the weak by sharing in their weakness listen to how he describes it now back in 2nd Corinthians 11 and apart from other things right I suffered from the Jews I suffered from the Romans and apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? There was the struggle of dealing with the Jewish population he was trying to win over. There was the struggle of dealing with the Roman population he's trying to win over. He said, then there's the people I've won over. Then there's the church itself which on its best day is a handful. He says they're weak. These are new converts. Suffering, being persecuted, getting things I told them wrong, ignoring things that I said, criticizing Paul himself and doubting everything. Every day is a new problem in a new convert church. And he says, and I'm there for that too. Does Paul deserve any of that? No, of course not. He's entitled to better. He's an apostle. You ought to be on a throne somewhere. He says, who is weak and I am not weak? He says, I'll take all that baggage too. 
Who does he spend his time worrying about? Paul won the week by more, worrying more over their problems than his own. Paul wrote the vast majority of our New Testament. Read it and write down every passage where Paul complains about his own situation. And then next to it, write down all the passages where he's concerned about the churches. It's pretty lopsided, folks. He knew the struggles they were going through, and like a parent, he cared for them more than himself. And continued not to make edicts and demands, but rather to try to persuade the people who were already in theory persuaded to strengthen them and to help them. Paul is playing a different game. And this year I want to encourage you to try to play Paul's game and not the game the world is telling you. Christ himself, remember Paul learned this game from Jesus. Christ played a different game. What does winning look like for Jesus? He was entitled to a throne. He was entitled to a crown. He was entitled not just to a nation, but an empire. The world should have been his. We all should have fallen at his feet. He went to the cross. And he submitted himself to the injustice of this world in order to save it. The cross was not defeat for Jesus. It was victory for us. Jesus was playing a different game. Paul summarizes by saying, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. There was something more valuable than what could be won in the game the world was playing all around him. And it was the shared blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Christians, winning is not imposing our desires or demanding our rights. For Christians, Winning is not even getting what we want. For Christians, it's a different game. Winning is paying the price of being persuasive for the gospel. We will not vote people into Christianity. We will not vote people out of their sins. We will not donate enough to our favorite political action committee to make the world right again. The way of the cross is fundamentally different. Victory is accomplished by persuasion. When we show people a Savior and they understand their need, at whatever price to us, that's what winning looks like. That's the game. In your own life, the same thing has to take place. You have goals, you have objectives. And you think winning in the American dream is accomplishing those. They may be financial or social or economic, whatever they are. What Jesus shows us in Paul is that winning might be losing all of those. Winning at the game of life might be losing all of the goals and objectives I set out for myself when I started this game. It might be passing on all the things I'm entitled to, to win something better by what Christ has won for me. What I want you to do today is to think about what game you're playing in your life. If you're playing the wrong game, if you're trying to achieve the wrong objective, you've got to stop. 
because it gets you nowhere. See in Christ, see in Paul, see in the church a better way. Respond to that. We'd love to help you to find that next step. It might be something as straightforward as responding and reacting, uh, reenacting the victory of Christ in death, burial, and resurrection and baptism. Or it may be changing something in your home life or just changing your goals for the year. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to help you. There's a million ways to do it. We're going to stand and sing in a minute. You can come forward. I'll talk to you. You can respond via text to the church number. I'll talk to you there. We can, you can reach out to one of us. Find the help you need and play the right game because it matters most of all. Would you pray with me? Father, defeat us when we play the game of this world and teach us instead the victory of Christ. Show us the way of the cross. Help us to embrace it, to find persuasion better than power, and to find in you a victory greater than anything this world could ever offer. Help us to repent of our ambitions and instead in humility turn to you for greater things than these. This we pray in the name of Jesus, your Son, the great victor. Amen.